morning, everybody. Okay, so um, we've been talking about Shantideva's uh, engaging in the Bodhisattva's deeds, chapter eight on meditation. Yeah, the first part of the chapter uh, talked a lot about the body and how we're attached to other people's bodies and to our own body and how that gets uh, really in the way of, of um, developing concentration and attaining serenity in our practice. And then having done that and, uh, you know, given up the uh, uh, as much as we can the attachment to the happiness of this life, then... Uh, you know, residing in a conducive place to do meditation. And what are we to meditate on at this point is uh, equalizing and exchanging self for others, which is Shanti Deva's um, method for um, uh, for developing bodhicitta. So I had this whole talk planned uh, in my mind uh, according to teachings I've heard from my teachers. And His Holiness said it all last night. So I'm just going to be repeating it again, yeah, in case uh, you fell asleep during the teachings last night. Uh, then, you know, of course, it's much better to hear them directly from His Holiness. But, you know, you missed out on that if you fell asleep. So... I'm a, I'm a second, uh, you know, second rate. But you can uh, hopefully get something from it because the teaching itself is, uh, is spectacular. It's really very profound. And when you really look into it, um, it's, it's so true that there's no way we can possibly refute it. You know, some teachings we hear, then we have... We have doubts, you know, rebirth, does it really exist? What about this? This reasoning I don't understand. What are they talking about? But how he presents uh, this meditation, there's no way our self-centered mind and our self-grasping uh, can wiggle its way out of that. this. It's, it's so direct and clear. Yeah. And, uh, of course, um, self-centeredness and self-grasping are not going to go, oh, yes, yes, that's very true. Uh, I'm retiring. Goodbye. I'm going to the Bahamas. No. You know, they're going to put up a good fight. And they're going to say, oh, but, you know, my happiness is more important because of this, 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 you know. And uh, even, even if it's defeated, it's going to keep fighting more and more and more. It's never going to give up. Okay. So, uh, so don't expect, you know, when you apply antidotes uh, to different problems that you're having, that they're going to, you just do that meditation once and whammo, the problem's gone. Yeah, you need to do these meditations many, many, many times, okay? And so that means it's important to uh, study 
the meditations, the antidotes, not only to self-centeredness, but all the other afflictions, to study them after you hear the teachings, meditate on them, taking up situations that have come in the past that have happened to you previously, or that you think might happen to you in the future, and imagining those situations, and then imagining thinking like this, you know, in a new way. And in that way, you develop familiarity with the Dharma perspective. Yeah. And that familiarity is really important because when you're, uh, a situation comes in your life, yeah, we need to be able to apply the antidote quickly. So we need to remember the antidote. And then even if we remember it, um, we need to apply it correctly. And even if we p apply it correctly, we need to be familiar with it for it to actually, um, you know, change our mind in that situation when we're right in the, the thicket of it with somebody else or, you know, the environment. Yeah. And then we need to keep familiarizing our mind with it. Yeah. So, you know, there's times in our practice where we get confused and we feel like our mind is just overwhelmed by afflictions and we don't know up from down. Um, you know, and in those those times, yeah, then we have to remember what the antidotes are and try and practice them. And if they don't work the first time, well, what, why not? You know, well, it's because I'm not so familiar with them. So I, that means I have to really put them into practice more and more and really develop that familiarity. Um, just to give you an example, uh, after I uh, had my, um, uh, my mm, how do you call it? Well, my experience with the macho Italian monks, um, you know, I did, I went into retreat and I was in retreat about four months then. And I would say 99% of those sessions, I was angry. Yeah, because I was so tied up with my anger when I was there and after I left. And every session I was meditating, uh, you know, chapter six was my refuge. And so I kept going back to it, meditating on it. And, you know, I'd calm down in the meditation session. Oh, that's nice. And then I would get up from the session and walk around, and then the anger would just go again. Yeah, and then the next session I had to, you know, revisit it and do the meditation again, okay? And so this went on for, you know, almost four months. Yeah, and I still have to do the meditation sessions now, not because of what happened then. I've kind of settled that, yeah. You know, it's like there's no use being roughed up about that now. But, you know, any small thing can set us off in our anger and our irritation. And uh, we need to be prepared. Yeah. Or if your big thing is confusion, and then you need to know, uh, oh, when I'm, my mind's just got godzillions of thoughts, then what do I need to do? 
breathing meditation. Yeah, just watch the breath, let the mind settle. Okay, it's not going to settle right away. It's going to be running around the world for a while. But you just practice settling it. Yeah, when you're attached to something, yeah, oh, the holidays are coming up and you, you want to be with your family and you miss your family. Normally when you're here, you're, you're quite okay without your family. But all of a sudden, the family, you know, holidays are coming and little memories of being a child and waking up on Christmas morning. I never had these because that we didn't do this in my family. But I guess other people do. I see around Christmas time, people really go kind of nutty. And no, seriously, in society, people go really nutty. So it's like Chinese New Year. Yeah, that those two holidays, boy. Um, anyway, yeah, so, you know, you're all of a sudden remembering your family and waking up and what's in your Christmas stocking and looking under the tree and all the presents and then... You know, you get to eat the food you like on Christmas, you know, but you have to go to church first. And, um, you know, whatever it is, and then all this longing and homesick, you know, or Chinese New Year is coming, and, you know, you just want to be there, all going home with all your relatives, going around every day, you know, you go and visit other people on Chinese New Year and eat yeah. So you you go around and visit and eat. Yeah. It's supposed to be the first two days, but the holidays actually 15 days. Yeah, so you know, after a while I think you get a stomach ache. Do you get a stomach ache? No, you don't. Yeah, you're smart. Yeah, and you get to eat, not eat, get to eat special food. We got special Singaporean food one day on Chinese New Year. Yeah, remember the two of you made that salad with the, with the long, yeah, that was really good, by the way. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, oh, dreaming of, you know, the Chinese salad with the really long pieces that indicates long, long life. Yeah. <laughs> and it takes you a long time to chew it because... As half of it's out of your mouth while you're trying to get the whole long piece in your mouth. And of course, that's when people take pictures of you. You know, yeah, I don't, there's many pictures of me in, in Singapore, always with noodles hanging. <laughs> yeah, but, but, you know, we get attached to these kinds of things and a feeling of home and warmth. You know, it's so artificial. We live in the middle of samsara where everything's unpredictable. And, and we look at, at those holidays as, you know, some source of, of um, security. Yeah. It's, it's quite interesting. So... Um, yeah, so the point is that we got we have to practice all these antidotes and not just wait when the situation happens, but really practice them in our daily practice and get familiar with them. And it's very helpful for working out things that happened in the past. 
Yeah. When we've been attached to something and we couldn't get it, do some of the meditations from, you know, about the disadvantages of attachment, about impermanence, you know, because you may still be hanging on to something that happened years and years ago. Yeah. That you don't even know that you're still hanging on to until you sit down and do retreat and you know, my I did Vajrasatha retreat and I realized I was still mad at my second grade teacher because she didn't let me be in the class play. Yeah. And as you all know, I'm a very good actress and I should have been in the class play in second grade. You know? So I was like, um, since everybody has trauma nowadays, I think that was my traumatic event. I'm not de depreciating, de deprecating people who had, you know, real trauma. But it's just uh, when the young adults were here, they told me everybody has trauma. Yeah, so I, I'm not sure what trauma means anymore. Anyway, um, yeah, so we, we have to really w wrestle with these things. Yeah, and uh, and keep at it. And if you do, then you see that your mind starts to change. Yeah. Because all these uh, habitual ways, dis habitual dysfunctional ways of looking at things are, con you know, they come from innate causes, but they've been conditioned in this life, in previous lives. And so we have to institute a new kind of conditioning, which comes about through practice and repetition, yeah, in order to overcome that old conditioning and then to finally break through the innate conceptions and grasping that are keeping us hooked to it. Okay. So that was the introduction. Um, yeah, let's do the um, the visualization of the merit field and ourselves surrounded by all sentient beings. And here it's very helpful. Uh, put, you know, think of specifically the people that you have difficulty with. You know, and they're... You know, the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas are in front of you. These people are in front of you. You, In order to see the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, you have to look at them. Because they're who the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas cherish more than themselves. So we can't ignore and block out uh, the people that we don't get along with or don't approve of or don't like. Yeah. So to see the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas, we have to see those people. And we have to open our hearts towards them. So bodhicitta, the aspiration to attain full awakening for the benefit of all sentient beings. 
depends a lot on the word all. And it's just a one-syllable word. It's easy to skip over. Yeah, we're doing it for the benefit of all sentient beings. So we, it's easy to just ignore all and think me and, you know, a few others who I feel close to and approve of and so on. And then to leave out everybody else. Very easy for that to happen. And very easy, you know, to get more and more people, more and more sentient beings into our field of all. And then anger rises and we kick a few out. I'll get enlightened, but not for the benefit of those sentient beings. They are evil, they are despicable. Yeah, I have love and compassion for others, but definitely not those. In which case, there is no bodhicitta. Bodhicitta depends on love, compassion, the special resolve, all of them aimed at all sentient beings. So that includes not only the little bugs flying around the tea counter or the little spiders crawling across the table or the turkeys. It also includes sentient beings in other universes who we don't know sentient beings in other realms of existence who may be the people we were close to uh, reborn in those realms. But bodhicitta really involves Uh, removing all the ifs, ands, and buts from why we think some people deserve happiness and other people don't. Why we should benefit some and not others. Why we are the most important of all of them. So there's some very deeply rooted grasping and assumptions and preconceptions that we have to notice and then acknowledge truthfully and then work to overcome.
Why put in the effort to do that? A few reasons. First of all, what else are we going to do in samsara? Now, if we really look at samsara honestly, because we know, you know, when we have to do the same thing over and over again, we get bored very easily. We should be bored with samsara because we've been born, gotten old, got sick, died again and again and again, countless times. Why are we not bored with it? There's nothing new that we get out of samsaric rebirth each time. So having done everything else in an effort to be happy, and none of those methods we tried really worked. We should give the Buddhist teachings a try, don't you think? Because we can see the example of people who have practiced them and attained the result. And those people are much more admirable and much happier than the people who've been going round and around in samsara beginninglessly. And so seeing the good qualities of the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas and how those come about dependent on living beings, then let's cultivate the bodhicitta as our motivation for our entire lives and especially for sharing the Dharma today. It's strange, isn't it, that we don't get bored with samsara? We've done it so many times, again and again and again. Why aren't we bored? Why do we think that there's always going to be some new, exciting something just over the horizon? Yeah. Okay, so we've been um, talking about the meditation on 
equalizing and exchanging self with others. So we remember there's uh, three subheadings in it. Yeah, the um, three reasons based on conventional truth from the viewpoint of others, three reasons based on conventional truth from the viewpoint of ourselves, and then three uh, reasons based on the ultimate perspective. So we finished talking about the uh, three reasons based on conventional truth from the viewpoint of others. You know, that all sentient beings want happiness, that it um, isn't right to, uh, to help some beggars. Actually, everybody's a beggar, if you think about it. It's not right to help some beggars and ignore others, and it's not right to help some patients who are suffering and ignore others. Yeah. When I, when I say, you know, they say beggars and patients, and we look, oh, I'm not a beggar. Yeah, yeah, but good to help all the beggars. And I'm not a patient, but, you know, I can try and help the patients. Um, but when you look at it from a samsaric perspective, um, as samsaric beings, we are all begging for happiness, aren't we? You know, our whole lives are devoted to going around looking for happiness, begging for happiness, thinking somebody or something will give us happiness. Please, yeah, give me this. I want to be happy. And we're all patients in one way or another, suffering from the 84,000 afflictions, saying, oh, my anger is killing me today. Oh, you know, instead you don't say, oh, my arthritis is killing me. My anger is killing me. Yeah, your anger is actually much more deadly than the arthritis. Yeah. yeah my attachment is just, oh, it hurts so much. But we usually say, it's our little toe. But really, you know, when we're, when we're miserable, if we look at it so often, it's, it's just plain old attachment, isn't it? We want something and we're not getting it. And often we don't know what it is we even want. We just feel like, depressed and miserable, um, something's missing in my life, I, I'm discontent, I'm dissatisfied, you know, I'm wanting something to happen that will change it all and make it better. And we're not really aware that it's actually craving an attachment that lies behind all of that dissatisfaction. Yeah. And that the problem with dissatisfaction isn't the lack of whatever object we want. It isn't the not getting of the object. It's the craving and attachment themselves that are, are the painful aspect of the whole thing. 
because we can see again so easily from our own experience at one point in our life we may crave this and want this this is the source of my happiness and i really want it and at another point in our life we couldn't we're not interested in the least in attaining that yeah so we can see from that example it's not coming from having the object or lacking the object it's coming from the mind yeah you know, when, when you're six years old, what are you miserable about not getting? Yeah. Chocolate cake. Legos. A bike. A bike. Yeah. What? Roller skates. Yeah. You know, and you're really wanting all of those things and you don't have them. And the kids who live and the other homes around you have them, and you don't, and you really want them. Yeah. When you're six years old, do you care about a corner office? No. Okay. When you're 36 years old, yeah, do you still want Legos and a tricycle? Well, you're a little kind of slow. But, you know, Legos are no longer interesting. Tricycle isn't so interesting. Roller skates, you know, not the kind you had when you are a kid. You don't want those. Yeah. Chocolate, you know, still tastes good, but you've moved up. You want, um, uh, you know, cognac now. Chocolate isn't good enough. So... Yeah, and, but you want the corner office, and you're not getting the corner office. So the things that you craved when you were six years old now are quite boring. Uh, but what you thought was boring when you were six, you really covet now. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? And how much suffering we go through when we don't get what we want. And it doesn't matter what age we are. That suffering is so intense. Okay. So, let's move on to the three reasons from the viewpoint of ourself. Again, talking from the conventional perspective. So here, the the first uh, point is that all sentient beings have been kind to us in the past, in the present, and will be kind to us in the future. And so we should help them equally without abandoning any of them. Okay. So this is the the meditation on kindness that is so important. Um, I know for myself this meditation completely changed me. Um, you know, I had been working on my anger towards a a good number of people. Uh, uh, But when it came to this meditation, this is the one that, that really knocked the anger out, for me anyway. Because I started seeing how the people I was mad at had actually 
been kind to me and helped me in many ways. And in ways, there's no way I could deny it. Yeah. So, you know, if you have had difficulty with your parents, then think about their kindness. Yeah. Because uh, we usually don't. In the West, we often don't think about the kindness of our parents. Ever since Freud came around, we think of our parents as the source of why we're so neurotic. Okay? Because they did this and they did that and they gave me this and they didn't give me that. Yeah? But we don't look at what they actually did for us. Yeah? At least I never did. I just assumed it. You know, the, you know, you're born and there are parents and they take care of you. And, uh, you know, it was their choice to have you and they seem to like it. So, um, uh, you know, yeah, keep it coming. <laughs> yeah. I never thought of what they gave up. And it's interesting now, I think, much more. Not only of my parents, but my grandparents, my great-grandparents, because I don't know very much about my family history. It all got lost, you know, with immigration. And, and just imagining what their lives were like and thinking, wow, if they hadn't gone through those experiences and uh, I wouldn't be here today. Yeah, and they they went through many many painful experiences, uh, and they did it for their own you know for their own sake. They did it for the sake of their children. I came around grandchildren, great grandchildren. They didn't know me. They didn't. I did Well, I don't. I don't know. Maybe they thought of you know their grandchildren and great grandchildren. Um, but you know they endured a lot to make a better life for not only for themselves, but from their kids, you know? And this is what you see again and again. This is the history of America that we tend to ignore, you know, why people come here. Uh, but, you know, instead we kind of criticize our parents and blame them and say that, you know, they're toxic and we don't want to talk to them ever again. You know, I can't. So many, in previous retreats in past years, so many people at the retreats just blasting their parents and this word of toxic, you know, they're all toxic again and again, you know. So yes, there's problems in, in families. There's no denying that. We're sentient beings. But those people have also been kind to us, you know. And when you think about it, you know, just they're giving us a body that's the basis of our precious human life is already something quite amazing. Yeah. So I've never been pregnant, but I can imagine what being pregnant is like. I don't think it's very comfortable. And from what I gathered talking to mothers, the actual birth process is extremely painful. Yeah. And then postpartum depression, 
often follows, you know, and for the fathers too, it's quite difficult. Yeah. Uh, now parents are more equal, but before, you know, the, the fathers had the pressure to go out and make money and support their kids, you know, and you think what your dad did all, you know, for years and years and years to to uh, not just put food on the table, but to give you toys to help you, uh, you know, learn different things and take you places so that you learned. And, you know, what our parents went through to bring us up and to give us everything they didn't have. Yeah. Uh, because my generation, our parents grew up in the Depression. Yeah. They grew up during World War II. It was, it was difficult for them. And they wanted us to have everything they didn't have. And you really think, you know, what the, what they devoted their lives to do and how much they struggled to make it happen. And I could tell you family stories. And I'll tell you one because it, it came out, I was writing to somebody the other day who, yeah, one of the inmates I write to, and he was saying how sometimes he he really thinks of he feels so sad not being with the people he loved. And he just feels like the time in prison is just wasted because he could be with the people that he that he loves and be happy, but he's just sitting in a prison sentence, uh, cell. And he's a lifer. Yeah, for, for driving the getaway car in a, uh, I think it was a murder or robbery, where they they weren't supposed to murder somebody, but it happened. But he was in the car, so he he got slapped with a life sentence, you know, as a young kid. And, you know, so he's going through all of this. And it just, um, you know, made me think of, you know, being with your loved ones and all. And then I thought of my great-grandmother, you know, I'm telling you all these personal stories at this time. I don't know why, but it's simply because I know my own stories and I don't know your stories. So if you told me your stories, I would tell your stories to the group. Okay. <laughs> but I only know mine. Um, so I was named after my great-grandmother. So I'm kind of curious about her. And uh, what I found out uh, is... And by the way, you know, because I have, let's see, I have four grandparents, eight great-grandparents. She's the only one I know the name of. The other ones, I don't know. One of my cousins is trying to find out some of this. But she, she lived in Poland. She was uh, married to a man who was a lawyer, you know, she was a seamstress, had four children, okay? And, uh, you know, it was rough. They were discriminated against in Poland and all the pogroms. So they decided to go to America. So my great-grandfather, whose name I don't know or remember, um, was going to go ahead to America 
um, you know, get a job, set things up, and then call for the rest of the family. So he took a boat to America, and they never heard from him again, the family in Poland. He got to America, disappeared. So there she is, a single mother. Yeah, in these days, being a single mother was, well, it's hard now. It's, I think, was probably more difficult then. Um, a single mother with four little kids. My grandmother was the youngest of the four. So she worked um, as a seamstress for a long time to get the money. And then she took the four kids on a boat over to America. They didn't know English. I don't know if they knew anybody at all. Yeah, my great-grandfather was supposed to be there, but... Mm -hmm. And somehow she set up the whole family, you know, and raised, raised these kids. And it's just astounding to me when I think of what she went through. Yeah, going to a country where you don't know the language. And I don't know if you know many people. I don't really know if she knew anybody. Um she didn't remarry. I've never heard stories of her remarrying. Um, yeah. But how the opportunities I have today come, you know, from what she did. You know, and then my grandmother, she wanted my grandmother to have everything she didn't have. So uh, my grandmother was in love with one man. But my great-grandmother made her marry somebody else who had a store so that they would have enough to eat. So she, my grandmother was in a very unhappy marriage. And I won't tell you the rest of it, but, you know, you, you just, all of our families have stories like this, yeah? And when you think of what the people before you went through, yeah. And so much of it was to to take care of their kids and to to help the future generations, even though they had no idea who we would be, who their future generations were, you know, or would be. Um, they wanted a better life for those of us who came after them. And to really think about that and... You know, when you do, then, at least for me, any anger that I had for, you know, the dysfunction of the family and da-da-da-da-da-da-da and them not accepting me the way I was and on-on-on, nah, nah, nah. it, it's like the kindness overwhelms any kind of criticism or dissatisfaction. Yeah especially when I ask myself if I would sacrifice like that for future generations, you know, who I didn't even know. So I think meditating on the kindness of others is, is a really important thing. And, you know, you might say, oh, well, she was still in your blood lineage, so you could see her kindness. 
But she was a stranger. My great-grandmother was a stranger. I never knew her. I never met her. I don't know if I would like her or not. Yeah. But when I think about a stranger like that being kind, and then, you know, what about her parents living in the old country, going through what they went through? And, you know, then you just see lots of lots of strangers, people you don't know, who kind of set forth, uh, you know, the direction. And then due to karma, we were born in certain, you know, in certain families. Yeah. And then you start looking around, because thinking of the, the kindness of, of our friends is no problem. That's why they're our friends. Yeah, because they're nice to us and they agree and everything, yeah? Um, as soon as they aren't, then they go in the enemy category. I mean, this is our problem, isn't it? How prejudiced we are. Um, but then you start looking around and at even the strangers in this life. Yeah. And, you know, we have a construction project going on there. And we don't know the guys working there because there's, there's so many different sets of people who come. Yeah. The guy that, that we know, the owner of the company, we, we hardly see at all. Only when there's a big problem, we talk to him. Uh, you know, uh, the superintendent, we see a little bit, but he's busy. We don't talk to him. Then there's one set of guys that come and run the big equipment. Have you noticed in the last week they brought in the really big things? Yeah. Then there's another set of guys who build the Foswell. Then there's the electricians and the plumbers. Another set of guys who put in the hydronics so that we can have uh, the um, radiant heating on the bottom floor. Uh, another set of people who put up the um, waterproofing on the back of the concrete. Okay. And another uh, set of people who come and do inspections on it. And then the guy in the home office, who we actually have met, who uh, orders all the materials. And then these people who drive the materials up and get their huge trucks through the S-curve. Yeah, coming up here. And you should see it sometimes when they're driving these really big trucks. I mean, I don't know how they got get the truck up and they can only get it to down in front of Chenrezi. And then somebody else has to come with a forklift and get it from Chenrezi up the hill to where the building site is. And we don't know any of these people. Yeah. Sometimes, you know, when there's the chance, I stop and talk to them and, and you know, thank them. But many days, they're just out there working. And, uh, you know, it doesn't... I've really learned something about construction uh, schedules. First of all, they're chaotic. You never know really what's happening at any time. They often decide that morning. But they, they have a schedule of you work 
four 10-hour days, and then you have three days off. At least this com company does, our contractor. They keep those three days off and work those four, Monday through Thursday and keep Friday, Saturday, and Sunday off, regardless of the weather. Okay. The way I would do it is, you know, my idea, because I always have many ideas about how people could improve what they're doing, is, on, you know, if there's a good weather forecast for Saturday, Sunday, uh, Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, work those days, you know, because the weather is okay. And then if it's going to snow on Monday, you take that day off. Yeah, take Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday off um, because you worked Friday, Saturday, Sunday because the weather was good. Or, you know, you work longer hours in the summer, so in the winter you don't have to be out there. No, that's not the way you do it. My idea flunked. Yeah. I mean, I have such good ideas, and people really don't appreciate them. So, uh, you know, uh, they, they do it. And you saw last week, uh, or a couple of weeks ago, um, that the weather was was good on Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and they took those days off, and it snowed Monday morning, and they were here working in the snow, okay? And they don't know us. Now, we could say, well, they're getting paid, you know. They're not doing it because they really care about us. They're doing it to make some money. Actually, the bottom line is not their motivation. The bottom line is that we benefit from what they do. Yeah, They don't have to be thinking of, Oh, you know, I'm building this Buddha hall for Venerable Semke and Venerable Chudran and Venerable Chuni and, you know, Venerable Rinchen and, and for Maitri and, and Karuna. Oh, no, they can't come in there. Um, uh, you know, uh, I'm building it for, uh, you know, Dronsel. And, uh, you know, they don't think that. Yeah, but all of us benefit from what they're doing. Yeah, all of us benefit. And you know what I found is when I say thank you to them, which I try and do as much as possible, um, they're happy to receive a thank you. And they say, oh, most of them say, oh, no problem. No problem. I'm watching what you're doing. Oh, my God, it's hard. Yeah. But they, you know, I think they feel good about contributing to building a building that other people are going to use. Yeah. But how much do we think about, you know, how, the, the benefit we receive from people we don't know? Yeah. So we don't have garbage collection at the Abbey. You might have noticed. Yeah. 
So uh, we give some of our recycling to guests who drive here to take back to their own cities that have recycling and recycle it. And the rest of the stuff, which is, you know, uh, can't be recycled uh, or composted, then it goes to the dump. Yeah. Do we need, know the people at the dump? Yeah, some of you may have been to the dump. Do you know the names of the people if you talk to them at all? Yeah. Nobody seems to know the people at the dump. Venerable Semke does, I know. Oh, yeah, she might too. Yeah. But the rest of us, I've never, you know, I've driven by the dump, but I've never been there. And I've never, you know, made contact with the people at the dump. Do you know them, Venerable Losang? I don't know their names, but I don't talk to the person that you pay. Yeah, they're working on machines, and yeah, you, you pay the... You pay somebody to take your garbage. Yeah. So when we really look around, um, you know, we use so many things, we have so many things, and yet we don't know the people whose life energy, their life energy is put into making these things that we just come along and buy, and when we get tired, or there's a newer model, we throw away without really thinking of how many people lay behind every single object we have, you know. And, you know, also to think of how many people we have learned from in our lives. Yeah, school teachers in America now, there's a dearth of school teachers. People are moaning about, oh, why don't the teachers come back to work? Why don't you look at the way teachers are treated in this country? Yeah. yeah. Teachers are treated Horribly in this country, not just by the students. You know, it starts when you're little and you all drop your rulers at 10 o'clock. Um, remember that? I, mean, I think that's what we did in the old days. I think now they'd probably turn on their phones at 10 o'clock with loud sounds. And you know, I don't know. But anyway, yeah, people, I mean, this, the teachers are given incredible work to do. It used to be teaching the kids and looking after their health and talking to the parents, you know, and being a referee at, at when they fight with each other, you know. Now, yeah, to, the, the teachers are told either to wear masks or not wear masks, yeah, and they have no choice, or that many of school districts are saying to the teachers, you cannot wear masks. Yeah, we want our children to, nobody, the kids aren't wearing masks, the, kid, the teachers aren't wearing masks. So you go in every day, you are risking your life to teach those kids. 
because some kid could walk in with COVID and you contact it like that. Yeah. Do, do people think of what, you know, of the teachers and their health? The, I mean, the same thing happens in the healthcare profession, you know, just expecting doctors and nurses to, you know, do do what the client, you know, what the patients want without even thinking of what they give up, especially during the pandemic. Yeah. I mean, at the beginning of the pandemic, do you remember people in Italy would gather on the balconies and clang pots and pans to say thank you for when the shift changes and the the healthcare workers were going home and the new ones were coming and they really appreciated them. Now, I don't know in Europe, but here in the States, healthcare workers, you make us wear masks. It's our, you're taking away our freedom. We don't want to wear these things. We don't want to get vaccinated. You know, you should treat us even if we get sick, if we don't have the vaccine, even if we didn't wear a mask. You know, you're our servants. It's horrible. Yeah. No appreciation for, for what the, all these people in healthcare do and the risks they take to take care of us, especially in, during COVID. Yeah. And we complain instead. Yeah. You had court cases of people who wanted to take, what was it, hydrochloroquine? You know, Trump, Trump's medicine for, uh, for um, COVID, the horse medicine. Some people wanted to take that. They were hospitalized. They wanted to take hydrochloroquine. Their doctors refused and they sued the doctors. They took the doctors to court and the doctors were trying to protect their lives from taking snake medicine. You know, what is it? Snake, yeah, snake, snake, what? Yeah, snake oil, that one, so, you know. Yeah, S snake oil means false medicine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like what we could make up, you know. It's it's like in the kitchen, you blend a bunch of stuff together, and uh, and then you give it a nice label and hope everybody will eat it. Yeah, <laughs> except this was actual horse medicine that could make you really sick. Um. Okay, so to really, you know, think of what people have gone through. Coming back to the teachers, you know, if you want to teach in a class now, sometimes what the parents want is you to be armed with a gun so that if there is an active shooting in your classroom, you will kill somebody to defend the kids. They And they want you, they, you know, it's not a choice. If you want to teach, you have to... No, I mean, I used to be a teacher. I, I would quit under those circumstances. I would quit under circumstances of, the you know, the kids not wearing masks and me not wearing a mask. Yeah? 
And but do we thank the people? Do we appreciate what the people do? Who, you know, some of them give up their job to follow what they, you know, what their principles. Other people, you know, sacrifice their principles in order to maintain the job because they need it. You know, think of all the minorities who stocked the food shelves, who kept the um, the uh, food places, you know, uh, running during the pandemic. And then everybody says, oh, there's such a high death rate among those people. Well, no wonder they, they have to go to work to support their families because they're living on the poverty line. And the rich people, you know, buy a second home somewhere else and live there and have everything they want delivered to them. Do do we appreciate the people uh, on you know whose life uh, on whose life energy we depend to stay alive, and uh, on whose life energy we uh, have learned everything we know? Yeah, if you get a job or you do well in school or you're an expert or you're just skilled in anything, you know whatever skills we have, yeah, even typing, yeah, even, I mean, I used to not think of the skills truck drivers needed, but boy, to get up those X, X, S curves and then to get the tanks for the water tanks up the hill, my goodness, it's a, it's, they are really skilled to get those big things up there. You know, um, every, but everything we know depends on people teaching us. We didn't come out of the womb knowing what we know now, having the skills that we know now. It doesn't matter if, you know, even if you're a great artist or musician or whatever you are, a great athlete, it's all because other people trained you and they taught you. And they encouraged you. Yeah. And so this is what we really need to think about in this meditation. And I'm going on at, at length about it because when I first uh, learned this, yeah, I, I remember that, you know, uh, we were up in Laudo in the Himalayas and Zopa Rinpoche was, was teaching. We were about... Uh, to do Nune, yeah. So in the, this little uh, area where his, remember his previous life had meditated, um, you know, the basic food they have was po potatoes. That was it. And uh, Rinpoche was telling the story of, uh, you know, because people... Uh, in the surrounding area would come and make offerings to him and request prayers and pujas. And as an offering, uh, they would bring potatoes because that's what they had. And he was telling the story of how he, you know, they would put the potatoes down and, you know, he would do the blessing and so on. And then he would think of the lives of these people and what they went through to raise even one potato that they had offered him, you know, 
Because these were, you know, poor people living up high altitude, trying to grow potatoes. If the potato crop failed, there wasn't a choice of other kinds of things to eat. Yeah. And he, he talked about, you know, just thinking about them going out, planting the potato seeds. Uh, and, or, no, they don't plant potato seeds. You do put the, what do you put in your, the small potatoes, don't you? What? Potato buds, yeah. Yeah, so parts of previously used potatoes, yeah. And they're out there when it's cold. The earth is hard, yeah. There's no great farm equipment, uh, you know. The ground is uneven. It's all mountainous there. And, you know, they plant the potatoes and they nurture the potatoes and they harvest the potatoes. Potatoes are heavy, yeah. So even to carry them from one place to another, it, you often wound up with back problems. And especially many of the women, they're carrying potatoes plus babies. Yeah, because that's what you did with babies in those areas is you carried the baby on your back while you're planting the potatoes. Yeah. And he said he, he would like just think of their kindness in growing even one potato. And he said it was the, the kindness was so strong that it was like he, he could barely make himself eat the, the potato because there was no way he said that he could possibly repay the kindness for somebody giving him one potato. Yeah? So this is, you know, when you really think deeply about this, this is, yeah, that kind of understanding that comes in your heart about, and when you think about it, yeah, we were born with nothing. Yeah. If you think that you have financial problems now, when you were born, you were poorer. We were all broke when we were born. And we didn't get a job for the next, I don't know how many years. Yeah. We were completely supported by other people who did everything for us. We couldn't... If we were hot, we couldn't take the blanket off. If we were cold, we couldn't put a sweater on ourselves. We couldn't communicate anything. You know, we could get smile and go goo-goo. And, you know, that might get us a little, you know, some, a little treat. Or we could scream our head off in the middle of the night, and that would get us some milk, too. You know. Did we ever say thank you? Hey, you woke up at three o'clock in the morning to feed me. And you, this has been going on for two years. You haven't had a good night's sleep for two years, sleep deprived for two years. And I'm screaming again tonight, you know, 2.30, 3 o'clock. Ah, ah, you know, and you're my servant. You come feed me. 
Yeah. And the person we consider our servant wakes up, sleep deprived, you know, comes into the room, feeds us. It's amazing. And we don't even say thank you afterwards. Yeah, we just fall asleep on them and then wait another few hours and then cry some more because we want more food. And when Rinpoche was uh, talking about the kindness of, of the mother, he would go into that so much in depth too, especially talking about how uh, mothers brought up the kids in Tibet. They didn't have Gerber's baby food. Yeah. Do they have Gerber's baby food now? They do? Okay, good. I mean, because all of my generation, we all grew up on Gerber's. Yeah. We all ate. Yeah, isn't it? You know, with the cute little baby on the front. Yeah. And um, they didn't have Ber uh, Gerber's baby food. They didn't have um, bottles. They didn't have breast pumps. They didn't have, uh, you know, all these other things now. So what the mothers did in old Tibet, he, he said, was they would chew the food, you know, and chew it and chew it and chew it and make it, you know, even more liquidy than Gerber's made it, and then take it from their mouth and feed it to the baby. And that's how the kids got nourished. Yeah. So the mothers not only were sleep deprived, they were probably lacking some nutrition and some food themselves. Yeah. And, you know, and he would explain this and, and ju then just say, you know, how can you ever repay that kindness? when you can't even feed yourself and somebody's doing that for you. Okay? So this meditation is really very important, I think, um, to, to really clarify for us the kindness of others and, uh, and make arise in us this feeling of wanting to pay it back, pay it forward, somehow do something, you know, for other living beings because we have benefited so much from their life's effort. Yeah. And this meditation also makes us quite humble, I think, because we see, you know, that if it wasn't for the kindness of others, uh, we would have died right after birth, you know, or as toddlers. And do you remember how many of you put dangerous things in your mouth when you were young? Did you hear stories from your parents? Yeah, about uh, uh, one, one time at DFF, we, we had a little go around when we were exploring this topic. Uh, talking about uh, kind of dangerous things we did as uh, as kids and how we got rescued. And one, you know, in those days, we, 
And people, I think, still use, do they use metal curlers? Yeah. Kind of you would put metal curlers with these flaps, you know, to in your hair, and then the flaps stuck the curls in your hair. Okay. Yeah, this is dated material, but we're still alive, you know? Anyway, so most of our mothers had these kind of curlers. So somebody was was in the group was saying, yeah, they took the curlers and with the little metal prongs, they stuck them inside the uh, electric outlets. Yeah. And I mean, you could get electrocuted that way, you know, but somebody came along and stopped them as they're like right in front of the electric socket wanting to put a metal inside. Yeah. One person said that what they did is, uh, you know, they wanted, to, they were playing as a, as a Sunday morning and their their parents were, were um, still asleep. And so they uh, made pieces of uh, bread out of newspaper, folded the bread, you know, and made it the size of bread, and then put it in the toaster. Yeah? And I think a fire started from that, and somebody came along and, you know, did that. So, I mean, when you look at the things we did as kids and how easily we could have died, but it's due to the kindness of other people that, you know, that we didn't. One day, Lama Osa, Lama uh, Yeshi's incarnation, he was at Tushita and his uh, his mom and dad were there. And he was like, I don't know, about this big. And all of a sudden, you know, I guess he, he had put something in his mouth and he's, you know, he's choking. And here's this kid uh, surrounded by monks and nuns who don't know anything about what to do with a coughing kid. You know, and the kid's choking and everybody's, what do you do with a kid who's choking? We don't know. And he's uh, 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 trying to get that out of his mouth. And his mother, Maria, just happened to walk by. He was the, I don't know, fourth or fifth or she had many kids. Uh, so she had some experience before he was born. She just walked by her kids coughing. She picked him up by the ankles, turned him upside down, whacked him on the bottom. Whatever he was choking on came out, put him down, and kept going. <laughs> you know? She was just, this is what you do for, for kids. She knew all about it. It was no big deal. Yeah? The sangha was like, Oh, we've been meditating on compassion, but we don't know what to do to help this this choking kid. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, when you really think about the number of times uh, we've been in dangerous situations, especially when young, uh, we probably, you know, if we sat down and told stories, I'm sure people here would have some real good ones. And... Uh, you know, just that, what people did to save our lives and what they went through to teach us, what they sacrificed so that we would have food. 
Now, my dad grew up in the Depression, and uh, I asked my grandma, uh, this was the other, my dad's side of the family, the first story was my mother's side, and I asked my grandma about, uh, you know, kind of living through that time, what it was like. And uh, she said, uh, we didn't have much food, so I gave the food to the kids and I told them that I had already eaten when she hadn't, you know, because it was more important that the kids ate than her. Yeah. I mean, these stories, I just, they're so amazing when you think about it. Now, somebody else is hungry, but I have food. You know, just wait. Yeah, if I have any leftovers, I'll give it to you. If I don't have any, too, too bad. Yeah. And then how the, you know, the poor and this, this disabled are often humiliated for being poor and disabled when it's not really their fault at all. Yeah. So, uh, you know, to, to see our attitude sometimes, uh, how we uh, block out just this awareness of, of the kindness we've received and especially from strangers, okay? Now, we only have three minutes left, but there's also the kindness of the people we don't get along with. And you're going, oh, I don't know those people. I'm not going to meditate on their kindness. They've harmed me. They've slandered me. They've ruined my reputation. They've rejected me. They've annoyed me. They abandoned me. They've been cruel to me. Yeah, they've played their numbers out on me, not caring about me. I mean, that's how our, our mind reacts when we, we think of people we don't get along with. Yeah. And the interesting thing about people we don't get along with is when they have really harmed us, we make a vow to ourselves. I will never benefit them. I will never speak to them again as long as I live. Yeah. We make that vow. Do you have, have you ever made that vow towards somebody? I will never speak to them as long as I live. And that vow we keep. <laughs> yeah. The, the precepts we take are negotiable. Marriage vows, very negotiable. But a vow not to speak to somebody for the rest of your life, we keep. Mm -hmm. And yet, yeah, and yet, at a different time, a different place, a different situation, that person may be the person winding up helping us and also, even they har the harm that they have given us has helped us. When I look back at the situations that I have grown the most from, it's all been situations that have been very difficult. 
where people have harmed me. They harmed me. Oh, I'm innocent. I'm just trying to be a good person. And they're biased, and they don't appreciate, and they're full of afflictions that are their own fault. Why don't they get themselves together and stop tormenting me? Okay. Yeah. Do you have... Uh, yeah, some of you I, I know pretty well. You have uh, those kind of pity parties. And, um, you know, one way or another, either that, if you don't have a pity party, you know, and cry your way through it, you go out and you, you know, uh, what do young men do now? They, they're starting to really tabulate things now. Yeah. Most of the mass shooters are young men. Yeah, I forget the, the percentage. It was 90-something percent of mass shooters are young men. Yeah, so they, they don't have pity parties. They go out in our land of freedom where you are free to buy a gun. And then they, in the last two weeks, you people probably don't know about it, there have been three mass big mass shootings in this country. We're not talking about the small mass shootings, okay? There, the first one was, let's see if I can remember the order. The first one was at University of Virginia where one football player, um, he was with a class. They uh, had gone to see a play in another place. They were coming back on the bus. There were other football players and other people from the class in the bus. And when they got back to the, the UVA, um, before they got off the bus, it seems like, or maybe as they were getting off, he took out a gun and shot up a bunch of people. And uh, three other football players were killed. And the pictures of those uh, three football players, you know, all minorities, but their pictures were beaming, you know. You could just see the life in them. And, you know, shot up. For what reason? Yeah. It seems like that, that guy, he didn't care who he killed. He wasn't specifically targeting them. But he just felt, or maybe I can't remember which ones were mocked and which ones weren't. But there, there, um, you know, some people were making fun of him, and he felt frustrated, and yeah. So it traumatized the whole UVA community. Okay, then there was a shoot up at a um, a gay uh, club. Club Q in Colorado, okay? Yes, Colorado, where they love guns, yeah? And, uh, you know, so everybody, all these people are there. The place is full. And uh, some guy comes in and just shoots up the place. And I think it was... Six people killed there and like 20-something people injured. 
Yeah, they're still looking for a motive. They've charged him with a hate crime, but they they still have to, you know, um, uh, find a reason for it. So that that was one. Okay. Uh, oh, then uh, there's actually a fourth one that hit the news. Um, then in uh, not too far away from here, in Moscow, Idaho. Okay. Uh, there were four college students stabbed to death in, uh, in, they were all sharing a house, you know, or they were the boyfriend of somebody living in the house. Four college students stabbed to death. The police have, this is more than a week now since it, they have no suspect. They have not arrested anybody. They ha seem to have absolutely no idea of who murdered these four college students. Okay. Then the, uh, the other one, this is all within two weeks. Okay. And this is only the ones who were reported. Then there was... Um, this one is the most recent one. In, uh, it happened in, also in Virginia, at Chesapeake Bay, Bay, Virginia, in a Walmart. And one of the, the night manager, the night team lead, um, because they all met in a break room before they started their night shift. So people were in the break room, hanging out, you know, getting things ready to start their shift. And the manager, the team lead for the night, night group, walked in and started shooting. Again, blindly, doesn't, doesn't care. Yeah. And there were, I forget how many people killed there. Five, six, and again, a bunch of people injured in the hospital. Okay. So I got off on that, you know, that, that was, we haven't had people harm us to that level because if we had, we wouldn't be here. But, you know, what I'm, what I'm getting, by, trying to get by telling those stories is that um, we, we just banish those people, you know, they are evil, they are corrupt, they are not worthy to live we want the death penalty. Um, I mean, people are, this is what I call trauma, and not just the family, but the whole community around there, you know. Um, uh, people are really traumatized, and we just have this attitude of they're mean, they're awful, throw them away. And what this meditation is doing is that's really an extreme, so I'm not think, talking about that extreme. But to think of how the people who do harm us, yeah, if we know how to practice, if we know how to manage our mind, these people can actually um, boost us on the path in a way that the people who are nice to us can't. Yeah. 
the people who challenge us, who criticize us, who harm us. I mean, it's big challenges, but this is the way, you know, if you're in these situations, this is the way you have to practice in order to heal yourself. Okay? Uh, so we've been sharing a few of the letters we've received from our friend in um, Kharkiv, U uh, Ukraine. She has a really good attitude, doesn't she? Yeah, it's amazing. She does not hate people because of this. And then, you know, losing her mother in the middle of it, even more, more painful for her. But she's really practicing through this whole thing. And that's what you have to do to heal from it. Yeah. Most of us haven't been in a war zone in Ukraine. We haven't been in a shoot-up. Yeah. We had one young man come here. He was in the, um, the theater in Colorado where they were showing Batman, where that guy came in and started shooting. Yeah. But most of us haven't been in, in that one of those situations. Uh, and yet, when somebody harms us, we hold on to it so tightly without seeing the, the possibility of forgiveness and without seeing how much we can benefit from working our way through that difficult situation. And I've gone over time and I don't want to harm you anymore because I know your bladders are about ready to burst. Um, <laughs> you know, so I'll, I'll, we'll continue. I don't know when my next teaching day is, but we'll continue. But try in the meantime, before we get into this, try and think about the situations in which you've experienced harm and what you have learned from those situations. Yeah, how that has, and it may be a situation in the past that you didn't practice in at the time because you didn't know the Dharma, but now you know the Dharma, and so you can look back on those situations and think, look at them from a, a Dharma perspective and think about the benefit that, you received from what those people did, even though it was very, very painful for you. Huh? So it could be physical painful, it could be mental painful. Yeah. How many people had stronger physical pain in their life? How many people had stronger mental pain in their life? Yeah, amazing, isn't it? Yeah, but what what we can learn from uh, the situations with people who have harmed and getting over that mental pain, you know, instead of walking around with it our whole life. Who wants to do that? Okay, so think about that because we're ending at a an inconvenient time. Yeah, for the benefit of our bladders and the benefit of whoever's ever leading at 11 o'clock. 